Get lit. All right. Good evening, folks. That's a new intro. That we're, I didn't like that. Might not be evening for them. I know. Oh, well, you know what? Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back to Get Lit. Uh, we are a literary podcast that study um, famous works of currently American literature that we are expanding for our large fan base overseas um, to people. Yes. And <laughs> it's better than no people. Um, and we take a look at the history of famous works of literature and the people who wrote them. Um, my name is Steph Spars. I'm the host. And my associate host junior is john stricker it's gonna get uh more demoted every week here's john so (laughs) (laughs) um we did some research for you guys um last week we were talking about kate chopin and we were learning about her life um growing up right before the civil war in st louis missouri um and i said that the states in between the North and the South were called border states, and I thought that was wrong. It's not. It turns out that it's right. That it's was, right. That was cool. Yes. I was, that, that doesn't happen all the Kudos time. Kudos to Stephanie. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so those are indeed border states. We checked the facts. Um, although I think I said it included Tennessee. Tennessee was not a part of that. I also could have just made that up. But if I did include it, now I fixed it. If I didn't include it, kindly disregard. Um, the other piece that we researched was whether or not Kate Chopin and the other... Frederick Chopin. That one. Yes. <laughs> piano one are not related. <laughs> They're not related. So They're not. That's no. all we had. Border states and not related. Not related. So this week we are going to cover Susan Glassbell. One of my favorite authors and the subject, I guess, like full disclosure, whatever bias, you know, like on the news, how they're like, by the way, we're funded by the person that we're reporting on. Um, I did a lot of work and research on Susan Glassbell when I was in college in the Provincetown Players. So this is something that I'm really passionate about. I'm really excited about. Um, and I hope you guys and you, I guess, enjoy it as much as I do. Stephanie's not overstating <laughs> it. This is probably one of her favorite subjects. So um, without further ado, um, let's hit up another Midwestern author. Um, we love those here. They seem to be real successful. I'm just saying maybe it's not so bad being from the Midwest. Yeah. Um, so... Susan Glassbell is born in Davenport, Iowa, on July 1st, so the anniversary of her death is coming, or birth is coming up, um, in a few short weeks. She's born on a farm to um, Elmer Glassbell, who is a hay farmer, and his wife, Alice Keating, um, who is a public school teacher. Way to go. Shout out to the hardworking public school teachers. I hope you made it through the ends of your year, and your summers are great so far. <laughs> um, She is the middle child of two other siblings. Um, She has an older brother named Raymond and a younger brother named Frank, which just sounds about as American, Midwestern, white as you can get. A hay farmer with three children, one girl, two boys. Elmer. Elmer. (laughs) Named Elmer. Elmer and Alice um, with their children, Raymond, Susan, and Frank. It's great. Frank. Classic. So um, Susan is a very precocious student. Mm. Um, She works her way at advanced studies, which for a woman at the time, 1876, isn't that popular. 
Um, she loves writing. She falls in love with writing and at the age of 18 becomes um, a journalist, actually, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, she gives the graduation speech at her high school when she graduates in 1894. Um, and by the time she's 20, she has her own news column. Granted, um, it's called News Girl, but <laughs> which, OK, let's unpack that. However, um, she used it to make fun of Davenport's social circles, the upper class, the wealthy, the bourgeois. Um, so it was satirical in its own right, which I think is really cool. Nice. Um, at 21, she goes and enrolls in Drake University, where she majors in philosophy and literature. She's really good at debate. She actually goes to the state debate competition and represents Drake during her senior year, which like... Hello, way to be awesome, Susan. Classic. Yeah, you go, Susan. Yes, um, we'll get t-shirts made. You can order them online. Probably. Yes, you go, Susan! You exclamation go. point. You, I'll get, get lit on the back. I'll get you one. Yes. And you have to wear it. I every. will wear it. <laughs> every day. Every day. Under your work uniform. That's right. Perfect. So, um, she's awesome. She has her early professional career um, where she excels. She's a reporter for the Des Moines Daily News. And this at the time is a very male-dominated industry. I mean, as most professional industries other than like teaching and like sort of nurses here were. And uh, she covers murder cases, state legislator and law. And this is where things start to get really into her life, like explodes and becomes awesome and crazy and wild. Um, and it actually starts as she reports on these murders. So she's working um, and covers the arrest and trial of a woman named Margaret Hossack, who gets accused of murdering her husband. Um, and what happened in December of 1900, uh, so this is right around the time that she's gaining professional traction. So she covers this really famous murder case in this tiny town. So John Hossack um, who's an Iowa farmer, gets attacked in his bed with an axe while his wife was sleeping next to him. And um, she becomes obviously the prime suspect in this. Uh, yeah. Um, but she, it wasn't her. It probably, they actually, spoiler alert, if you don't like spoilers, skip forward 15 seconds or whatever. Um, he, they never find out who actually murdered him. But she, okay, spoiler alert, over. Um, so Susan is reporting on this trial and Margaret is, is accused and brought to court and trial and everything like that and um, eventually put into prison. But there's all kinds of evidence. It's very cool if you actually sat down and analyzed the case. There are theories that her, her sons did it, their, their sons did it. There are theories that the sons and the mom were in on it. So it's, it's really pretty cool. I actually use this as a classroom activity. Um, I give the students all the facts of the case. I have them try to figure out who did it. Um, when we read the story that Susan Glassbell wrote about this case called A Jury of Her Peers. Um, oh. She writes this in 1916, so it's, it's later than the actual trial takes place. But uh, I think, it, I mean, it, it's sensational. It's a really amazing short story. Um, and she later translates this into a play called trifles so that's coming along later but she just kind of starts out like that's right at the beginning of her her career wow right like way to start strong a deep sleeping wife and an axe murderer all right. in one case what more and a woman a woman murderer a woman murderer a potential woman or woman murderer. murderer um so she does this for about two years but she winds up quitting the paper she's like i love fiction 
I would like to focus my work on fiction. So she moves back to Davenport. She's in Des Moines at that point. Uh, and she begins writing and publishing fiction in all kinds of magazines across the country, uh, including Harper's, The Ladies' Home Journal. And uh, eventually she heads off to Chicago. And she writes a, a book called The Glory of the Conquered. This is in 1909. And that becomes a New York Times bestseller. And she starts making the dollars. She gains that grain. You go, Susan. Right? Like, I amazing. My, this is where I need my shirt. Yes, you just you, <laughs> you go, go Susan. Susan. <laughs> so she writes this amazing New York Times bestseller, and this allows her to go travel around Europe for a year. And she spends a lot of time in Paris, um, and she goes with a friend, and she learns all about different influences and new artists and that sort of thing. She gets exposed to kind of the avant-garde and the realism that would eventually come to the United States. But she gets to kind of experience that at this point. So Susan comes from a very conservative family, like everyone in Iowa, though, is like conservative. I mean, with a father named Elmer, I feel like it's implied. So um, no generalizing, though. What's that? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone in Iowa is conservative. No generalizing. (laughs) None. Okay. so she is involved in these socialist circles, right? So like a lot of the upper class of, of Iowa, which is kind of is where Susan is running at this point. Um, she's not, she's not about it. Mm. So she starts to go to these socialist society meetings and she meets a guy named George Cram Cook, who's, um, an English teacher at University of Iowa. Um, and he comes and they meet together in the socialist circle because who doesn't fall in love discussing socialism? Um, that's how Bernie Sanders and his wife. I knew that was coming. (laughs) That is, yes, Bernie Sanders. Great. So 1% of the 1%. Please don't. It's the second time on this podcast I've done my Bernie Sanders oh, impression. That, I've, I'm sad I forgot about that. Not really. I, I think I tried to put it out of my mind. You're so, welcome. Thank you. So um, just they meet and Susan um, falls in love with him, which is unfortunate because he's in his second marriage. Um so Susan... Wait, when Susan meets him? Right. He's in his he's, second He's marriage. married to another woman. Oh, okay. And that's number two. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Susan falls in love with him, and she's like, you know, I can't do this. You're awesome, but I'm not going to do this. So she goes to uh, New York City to write and to kind of end this infatuation that she has. It doesn't work <laughs> for either of them, so... George divorces his wife oh, um, in 1911, and then they get married in New Jersey Susan, in no. home 1913. Record. She didn't wreck any homes. She left. That she was all try. on him. She tried. No, no, no. That was on him. Okay. okay. It was on him. Yeah. You go, Susan. You go, Susan. You, thank you. Back on. T-shirt back on. <laughs> T-shirt is on. So um, they go to Chicago and, and then eventually Greenwich Village to kind of get away from the gossip mm. of Iowa as it were. And they run the circuit in New York City. They live in Greenwich Village, um, and they're really into the social reform scene, activism. They are really involved in these reform circles and all kinds of stuff like that. So at one point, Susan obviously still writing. George supports her writing, which is great. Uh, She sends a play to the Washington Square Players to try to get it produced. It's called Suppressed Desires, and it's basically a parody of psychoanalysis. Um, Sigmund Freud's theories are very popular right now. Everyone has some sort of, like, itis curable by, you know, in Freud and phalluses or whatever he studied. 
Um, so she sends this play called Suppressed Desires in, but Washington Square players like call it cute and they're not really interested in it. And George gets real upset about this. So he's like, fine, Susan, let's go take the kids. Just kidding. They have no kids. We're going to Provincetown and it's going to be great. So they start to summer in Provincetown, which is in Massachusetts, right on the tip of the little arm that wraps out from Boston. Cape Um, Cod, no? Cape Cod, exactly. Fun fact, the Pilgrims actually landed at Provincetown first before they hit um, Plymouth Rock. Oh, cool. So there's a little trivia fact for you guys. Um, they start recruiting their friends to join them, and then by 1915, they establish, drumroll, the Provincetown Players, which again, here's the bias. This is what I did all my research on. Um, I've gotten to go to Provincetown a few times, which is amazing to do some research on it. So actually, um, on the social media feeds, you guys can take a look. I have a picture of Susan Glassbell's house um, and the remains of the Provincetown Players Theater. So um, it sounds ominous. Well, it got knocked over in a hurricane, but oh. that's fine. Okay. It happens when you're by the ocean. Yeah. So they established the Provincetown Players, which transforms the American theater scene. Um, I mean, Chicago, this podcast is based out of Chicago, and we are famous for our storefront theaters. Um, and this all really starts with the Provincetown Players, with Susan and her husband, George. Um, it's a really homemade movement. They take this old fishing wharf and transform it into a theater, and they write, direct, design, and act in all of their own work. So the first season in 1915 has two one-acts that they produce, including Susan's. Um, they support women playwrights and actually launch the career of Eugene O'Neill, one of America's most famous playwrights, wow. which is cool. And some of these original members of this group include Susan and George, who are kind of running it, um, along with Eugene O'Neill, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Theodore Dreiser, Floyd Dell, Jack Reed, Max Eastman, who all have these like very influential activist political leanings, mm. Neith Boyce and Hutchins Hapgood, Louise Bryant, and Mary Heaton Vorse, who's also a force in herself. She is a, it's great. Would highly recommend looking into Mary Heaton Vorse as well. So, um, This group experiments with realism, with satire, which is really different than what's currently happening on Broadway in New York that are all about melodramas and all of this sort of ridiculous fluff. Operettas and farces, right? right? And so they strip all of that away and they're like, let's get real Um, or lit. Whoa. That was not a good one. (laughs) My apologies. So um, eventually, after a few summers of this, they move for an all-year season, the Provincetown Players, to New York City and again, Greenwich Village. You can go see their original theater. Um, It's on NYU's campus. NYU actually owns it now um, on McDougal Street. So that's kind of cool. I've been there too. I can put up that on the internet as well. So eventually... um, they move it back and they get famous and successful and George is like, mm, I'm not really about that. There's some disputes that kind of happen and they believe that kind of all of this hype is going to move the Provincetown players away from their original purpose. So the group kind of disbands around 1922, which also, um, you know, makes way for the rest of the theater that's going to come. So... Hmm. What do the Cook Glassbell clan do? Um, they go to Greece because George wants to be a shepherd. 
So that's wow. fine. <laughs> um, so this actually works out well for Susan because in 1920s, um, England actually starts to publish her work. She gets a hold of a British publisher called Small and Maynard, and they go wild. So Susan Glassbell is well received in the United States, but she's even better received in England, which is cool. Yeah. Um, English critics revere her over Eugene O'Neill. They compare her to um, Henrik Ibsen, wow. who they consider to be the most important playwrights in Shakespeare. So like England loves Susan. Um, Greece, whatever. Uh, she only lives there from two years for two years because George dies of an infection that he gets from his dog in 1924 <laughs> and so that sucks. what it's fine yeah he got an infection from his dog and then he died so he's buried there i believe and that's that's how george dies so susan oh she's got years to go okay so, um susan goes back to the united states um and she actually writes a biography about her husband which like let's be real if you're gonna have someone write your biography like susan glassbelt not a bad person to have oh. so it's called the road to the temple it's published in 1927 um and in the late 20s she kind of works very closely with a younger writer named norman h Matson. um they kind of have this affair they never get married some people think they got married she was a second husband or he was her second husband, but that's not necessarily true. Mm. Um, she, in 1930, publishes a play called Allison's House, which, here's a tie-in to a previous Get Lit episode, is loosely based on the life of Emily Dickinson, really her death and the fight to publish her poetry after she dies. Oh, nice. So that's really cool. And this wins the Pulitzer Prize in 1931. She, during this time, is the second woman to win this award ever, Pulitzer Prize in Literature. So Go, Susan! Uh, right? Let's go. Susan! <laughs> So in 1932, um, she ends the relationship with Matson. That's eight years. And she falls into her kind of lowest and least productive period um, because she's depressed. She deals with alcoholism and the subsequent poor health that kind of comes along. Mm -hmm. But in 1936, she's invited to come back to Chicago because she's appointed to be uh, the Midwest Bureau Director of the Federal Theater Project during the Great Depression which is very cool. And she also reconnects with her siblings, which oh. is very fun. Um, so she kind of gets it together going back to Chicago. And then when that time is over, she goes back to New York, um, splits her summers out in Cape Cod. She continues to work and write publishing novels. She continues to be on bestseller lists and that sort of thing. Her theater, actually, incidentally enough, which she isn't maybe is more recognized for, I should say, doesn't actually earn her the same money that her short stories do. So she actually writes short stories to make money, but kind of is really passionate and continues to write drama anyhow. Interesting. Right? Um, which, you know, I guess... Well, magazines are hungry for that content at the time, right? Short Literally stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have nothing. We have a radio. That's about it. Um, we need to read about murders in the newspaper, and then we need to write a story about the murders in the newspaper. Right. Um, so she helps out other people. She um, takes a woman and kind of helps her out who is in an abusive household situation, I think, towards the end of her life. And um, that's really amazing. So Susan kind of lives out the last parts of her years a little bit under the radar. Um, she dies of pneumonia in Provincetown on July 28th. 1948, um, and left behind a legacy of nine novels, 14 plays, and over 50 short stories. 
um, many of which are set at home in the Midwest for her. Hmm. Um, so that, not the super long life like that Mark Twain had, but um, I think the super important, influential, amazing, spectacular, you go Susan life of Susan Glass Bell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's her. Um, what some of the things that I think are really important about Susan and like her work and all of the amazing things that she did um, is much like Kate Chopin was an advocate for women having their own agency. Her characters um, were well developed. They were interesting. They had their own desires and their own agency, things that they wanted to do. Uh, so that is not only kind of a hallmark of her work, but I think, again, another important reason why she needs to continue to be studied um, is because she took all of these opportunities in her stories, but she also took them in her own life. And I really love that. You know, Stephanie, one of the things I like is that we've now achieved parity. We've done 50% men and 50% women authors. That's so true. I think that, I mean, I'm glad that Glassbell was the one to get us uh, to the 50%. Because she is 50% amazing, 50% awesome, and 100% Glassbell. Yep. Okay. I'll get you that on a mug. You can have your mug and your t-shirt. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I think, again, kind of the importance of, of balancing the canon. Who are we looking at? Um, obviously, you know, we'll be the first people to analyze our own work and say, okay, we need authors of color and that sort of thing. So we're definitely going to work to kind of expand um, folks of color and include more people with different racial backgrounds and things like that in the future. Um, but we've hit male to female equal parity. High um, five. No, I'm not high-fiving for something that should be implicit. That's fair. <laughs> um, that can be your lesson for today, folks. Don't high-five yourself over something that should exist. That's actually an educational philosophy. Like, you shouldn't reward kids for something they should already be doing. Oh. So, like, instead of rewarding kid, like... If a kid does their homework and you, like, reward them for getting in on time, like, it tells them that doing the basic was the right, like, d gets me more, mm. you know? So they always say, like, reward kids for actual things that they do that go be above and beyond, as opposed to rewarding them for doing the expected behavior. Well, we would have been rewarding Susan so much for going above and beyond. Endless awards. Endless awards. Endless t-shirts and mugs. Yes. Because that's all we can afford until we get sponsors. <laughs> yeah. This podcast still has none of them. So if you're interested in those opportunities, I'll say um, feel free to contact our agent. You can get a hold of us on the internet, um, like our website, yeah. um, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, we'll have our manager take a look at that. Mm -hmm. um, manager. It's myself. Yes. <laughs> I do that. Yeah. So All of it. All of it. <laughs> um, so that kind of wraps up, I guess, this week. Um, so I hope um, in the future that you guys keep listening and keep sending us your feedback. We love, again, to read it and hear about it and that sort of thing. Um, but we're looking forward to doing some really cool episodes. We've got more guest stars planned for the future. Um, our dueling episode is coming up. So um, please continue to share, like, subscribe, leave feedback and comments of any kind. Um, we'd love to see them and engage with you. So thank you again for joining us and for always keeping it lit. <laughs>